Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate. Lots of questions swirling around like confetti. Lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain. Sleepless nights, shallow breathing. Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a sane split. Welcome to Sane Split and thank you for tuning in. Today I'm going to give you a bit of a primer on separation agreements. Remember primers, those little books we got in grade one about the ABCs? Hmm, I may be aging myself here. My focus will be the Ontario perspective. But even if you don't live here, there may be parts of this episode, topics, which may apply in your area as well. Some housekeeping before I move into our subject for today. Thank you for your generous feedback about the podcast. I appreciate it very much. If you have any questions for me or ideas for future episodes, for example, please email me at aj at jakubowska.ca. My email address is included in the episode note as well. I have a number of interesting and engaging guests lined up, and I will be recording our interviews in the next little while. I am confident that you will find these dialogues informative and, importantly, real and human. Here is what I have lined up at the moment. Anissa Feely O'Brien will be sharing with the listeners her tips for navigating change in the context of a separation. She's a family law and immigration law lawyer with tons of professional and personal experience with change, moving her life from Ireland to Canada, for example. I've known Anissa for some time now. She's engaging and warm and truly committed to helping her clients. Importantly, she shares my view that we must always remember our clients' humanity when we are assisting them. They are real people with real lives, emotions, hopes, and dreams. I very much look forward to that conversation. Catherine Rajak will be another guest on the podcast soon. This dialogue promises to be dynamic, spirited, and informative. Catherine is a woman of very broad interests and qualifications, 
an actor, as well as an experienced family law lawyer and mediator. She and I will talk about various forms of communication, verbal and nonverbal, some obvious and not so obvious pitfalls of using email and text in the context of a separation, and ways to use conflict to actually come up with methods for communicating more effectively. I can't wait to speak to her about all these topics. I also have a three-way conversation planned with two dynamic and very personable family law lawyers, Janice Ho and Lucia Lam. Our subject will be limited scope legal services, an innovative way of delivering and receiving legal advice and coaching. All three of us provide limited scope services, and we are believers in this model as a viable option for giving Ontarians more access to justice. Tune into that episode coming up soon. I look forward to sharing with you my guest's modern, 21st century accessible perspective on the practice of family law and innovative waves ways of helping people whose relationships end to get legal assistance in a way which fits into their budget and serves their needs. Very much looking forward to that conversation as well. Please stay tuned for those episodes coming soon. Now on to the primer. I have chosen separation agreements as a topic for the podcast because many people ask about them when they initially call my office and because they're the bread and butter of what I do as a family law lawyer. In other words, they are common in many family law cases. When I wear my hat as a family mediator, I'm also asked about them a lot. And I often work with mediation clients with the goal of ending their dispute by way of a separation agreement. Many people have a general idea that a separation agreement fits somewhere into a separation, but they're not sure how, when, or who takes steps to generate one, what the content may be, or what the point of having one is. I hope to answer these basic questions in this episode. And I have organized my discussion around five takeaways, five general headings, sometimes in the form of a question, broken down into further detail. So here we go. Number one, a separation agreement is not an agreement to separate. I often hear the public use the phrase legal separation, and many people think, because they have told me so, that a separation agreement is a document which confirms a separation, which makes it legal. Confirming a separation, the very fact of a relationship ending, is not the reason people enter into separation agreements. And in fact, most such agreements come at the end of a family law case, not at the beginning, right after the separation. 
I say most such agreements because sometimes there are reasons to have an agreement before the entire case ends. And later in this episode, I will explain what I mean here. In Canada, the decision to separate can be made by just one party to a relationship. The other does not have to agree. When A decides the relationship is over and begins to act consistently with that decision, the relationship is over, whether a marriage or a common law relationship. Steps may then have to be taken to further disentangle the parties, close joint accounts, for example, agree on financial arrangements, establish two residences, decide about various issues relating to the kids, who will make decisions about them and how and where they will live. But the separation itself, the act of ending the relationship, is something which can be done which can come about based on only one side's decision. From a legal perspective, B cannot say, no, I do not agree with the separation, I'm not divorcing, for example. Well, B can, of course, have a view of the situation, perhaps an emotional response, including sadness and regret that this is happening. B can wish A was not making this decision. It happens all the time. B can try to talk A out of ending the relationship, can propose counseling, for example. From a legal perspective, however, if A's mind is made up, that is the end and a separation has taken place. I take you back to the allegory of A and B separation in the episode called A Journey to a Place Called Apart. That is an example of a situation where one person decides to move on, the other person is very upset by the decision, but has no choice but to live with it. Of course, To affect the separation, for it to actually take place, A has to communicate his or her decision. So B knows about it. It cannot remain a secret in A's head and heart only. There are many ways of doing that, and I'm now thinking this may be a topic for another episode. But my overall point here is that Separation is a question of fact. It happens based on one side's decision or a joint decision to separate, which is also possible. And when it does, it is legal. There is no need to register a separation anywhere or have a lawyer confirm it in any way for it to be effective. So to summarize, A separation agreement is not a document which in and of itself makes a separation legal. Here's takeaway number two in the form of a question. What is a separation agreement? It is a document which can have only several or many pages, 
which is signed by both parties. It is a contract between two spouses who have separated, both married and common-law spouses, which sets out in writing the terms on which they are separating and if they are married, divorcing. It is confirmation of what is happening at the time the agreement is signed and likely confirmation of what will happen in the future as well if there are children involved, for example, and or there are support obligations going forward. What do I mean by terms? A few seconds ago I said it's a document which sets out terms on which the parties are separating. I mean that it lists all of the issues which had to be dealt with between the spouses when they separated, the legal issues which were triggered when the separation happened, and then it explains how those issues are resolved and agreed on item by item. I am going to give you some examples of possible terms for separation agreement to help you understand this further. So here we go. All child-related issues. Custody, which at present in Canada means decision-making about the kids. Residence, where they will live. This language will change in March 2021 when the new Divorce Act comes into play. But for the moment, let's use the current language. Another example of terms, child support, all aspects of it. Who pays to whom, for which children, in what amount, what type of child support, whether, for example, it's the table amount of child support or contribution to Section 7 expenses. These last two phrases I used, table and Section 7, are two components of child support in Canada. I am not going to spend any more time on them right now because they're not our topic for today, but they're important terms for separating parents with children to understand. The separation agreement could talk about how long the child support payments are made. What happens if things change? If, for example, one parent loses their job. Or what happens if a child drops out of school and begins to live on their own. So any issues related to child support. Another possible term in a separation agreement Spousal support. This used to be called alimony. Again, who pays it, to whom, for how long, in what amount, whether the recipient, the person receiving it, has any obligations around work, to find work, to maintain work, all issues related to variation, meaning changes down the road. And I talked about this when I spoke about child support. What other issues, possible terms? All issues related to property, including equalization, which in Ontario is the formula and mechanism for dealing with the separated spouse's property and debts. 
if they are married and separated. But it can also deal with all property issues and debts if these separating spouses were common law. And here they would not use the formula I spoke about. In Ontario, common law spouses and married spouses do not have the same property and debt-related rights on separation. Again, I will leave it here because what those rights are is not our topic for today, but an important area to get advice on if you are separated. So as you can see, based on my examples, there is a very broad range of subjects, terms, that a separation agreement could potentially deal with. What is actually addressed depends on each specific case and the issues in that particular case that were triggered when the separation occurred. Takeaway number three, the length and content of the separation agreement generally depends on two main factors. The number of issues terms to be dealt with, and number two, how complex, complicated the terms are. So let's consider two straightforward examples. Separation agreement number one. John and Michael, they were married and are now separated. They have one child. The child will be living with both parents one half of the time. John and Michael are really cooperative when it comes to parenting. Both work and earn similar incomes. They have one main asset, the matrimonial home. They each have RSPs, small bank accounts, a car each. John will stay in the home and buy out Michael's joint interest in it. So here, not a long or complicated agreement, several pages long, general terms around parenting, how the child will be supported by both fathers, some detail around the buyout of the home, but nothing very complex. So here's separation agreement number two, Sandra and Miranda. They are not married and they're now separated they have two kids. Sandra ended the relationship. Miranda is very upset about that. They have had trouble communicating about the kids and Sandra is already seeing someone else. They are going to try and share the kids residence, meaning the kids will live with each of them roughly equally. But given there are some early signs of potential problems down the road, despite the best of intentions, the separation agreement might need to have a pretty detailed parenting plan built into it. In other words, clauses, detailed clauses about the kids, decision-making, how to break deadlocks, the sharing of holidays, attending at activities, school recitals and so on. Sandra and Miranda are also owners of a cottage and and 
an investment property in addition to their residence. Sandra will take over the cottage. Miranda will take the residence. They will essentially swap. There will be some child support paid by Sandra to Miranda because Sandra is working and making a good living and Miranda has not worked outside the home for some time. Miranda will also get some spousal support from Sandra to help her get on her feet as she's been out of the workforce for a while. But there will be a review after three years and everyone will then take a fresh look as to whether the spousal support should continue. In the meantime, Miranda is to do some retraining and actively work on finding a job. This agreement will be significantly more complex. Depending on the detail of the parenting plan portion, that alone might take several pages. The agreement will then address child and spouse support and here... There would also be discussion, which can sometimes be quite detailed, about the review in three years and Miranda's re-education and work-related obligations in the meantime. Then the agreement will talk about the swap, cottage to one, home to the other. That investment property will also have to be addressed. So as you can see, more terms more complex terms too than in the agreement number one for John and Michael. To summarize, the number of issues and related terms and their complexity impact on how long the agreement will be and yes, what the cost will be as well. The longer, more complex the agreement, the more expensive it is likely to be. Back to our list, and we are on takeaway number four. And here's a key question, one I'm asked quite frequently. Ready? Here it is. Why would you want to have a separation agreement? The answer to that question has many components and may vary depending on a particular case. But there are some general themes I can share with you which apply virtually universally. One reason, legality. A separation agreement, when put together the right way by people with the right expertise and experience in the right format, signed by the appropriate persons in the right way with the benefit of legal advice, with each party knowing all the chips on the table, in other words, participating in the negotiations based on a transparent and informed dialogue, creates binding legal obligations, which are also legally enforceable. Boy, that was a mouthful. Let me break that down a bit. If you had a cavity you would not do your own filling. You would go to a dentist. 
I mean, it is possible you could do a good job doing your own filling. Absolutely, it is possible. But much less likely than when a dentist completes the task. Dentists know how to diagnose the issue. Is this a simple cavity or is there potential for some serious, some more serious problem, a complication? Dentists know what materials to use for the cavity. They know how to prepare the tooth. They know the sequence of steps to be taken during the procedure. They know whether an antibiotic needs to be prescribed as companion treatment. They can anticipate whether there will be pain or uh, if you uh, need to be sent home with a script for a painkiller. Family law lawyers know about separation agreements. They understand the legal issues involved when relationships end, and they know what questions to ask to ensure their client is bargaining, discussing potential settlement with their eyes opened and in an informed way. Is it possible you and your spouse could draft up a separation agreement, have what we sometimes call homemade separation agreements? Is it possible you can draft one on your own, sign it, and there is never, ever an issue with it in the future? Absolutely. But then do you know what is to go into the agreement? what topics you should be thinking about when you and your spouse are discussing the terms and negotiating? Do you know what language needs to be used to make the terms enforceable if there is a problem? Do you know what extra steps you should take to make the agreement as solid as possible and less likely to be successfully attacked down the road, possibly set aside? When I say enforceable, I mean one of the parties asking a decision maker, usually a judge, to compel, order the other party to do something they were supposed to do based on the agreement and did not. Let's use an example to illustrate both the point about drafting a clause without a full understanding of the legal issues, and then problems with enforcement. Two separated spouses create their own separation agreement, which has the following paragraph in it, and I quote, John and Sally will share the cost of Jonathan's daycare, close quote. For six months following the signing of their agreement with this clause in it, John and Sally are doing fine. But then at tax time, John wants to take the full deduction for the daycare, the full tax deduction. Sally does as well, and they have a fight. John says, if you take the deduction, then I should be paying less. And by the way, We never said half. I thought I was only paying 30% and taking the tax deduction. Sally says, the agreement is clear and you have to pay. John doesn't agree and stops giving any money for the daycare. 
Sally then registers the agreement with the court, and it then gets into the hands of the Family Responsibility Office, FRO. She says to them, please collect the money John owes me for the daycare. FRO says, but we have no idea what we are to collect based on the wording of your clause. We can't collect anything. What does share mean? Is it half? Is it some other percentage? We do not become involved in interpreting separation agreements. We collect. That's what we do. How do we know from the clause if he owes you the money already? Because there's no indication how you are to share the expense and when any amounts would be due and payable to either of you. So he may not be behind in payments quite yet. So John and Sally have the best of intentions and make up their own agreement motivating, motivated by wanting to save costs. Why spend money on lawyers when we can do this ourselves, right? Yes, you can do that, but then there may be a problem with that filling you did yourself based on my dentist example. Sometimes a person just like Sally comes to me often in financial straits and says, I'm having a problem. John is not paying. FRO says they cannot help me. Please fix this for me. I explained some of the problems with the daycare clause, the way it was drafted, and then I often hear, I didn't know we were supposed to do that to include that language. Sometimes, often in fact, the cost of fixing a problem like this one may be higher than what it would have cost to do a clear and enforceable agreement in the first place. Here is my point. Yes, you can create your own separation agreement without lawyers involved. The question is, will it work for you? Will it work for the other side when the chips are down and some problem crops up? What if two people enter into a homemade separation agreement and years later, one of the spouses comes back and says, I know I said I would accept $3 when we settled, but now I found out about that condo he has in Florida, the one he inherited when we were married. I may be owed more money for that. So now I want to set aside the agreement and I want him to pay me more. Or the child support was calculated based on $50,000 of income. But after we signed, I found out she was working overtime and also had a busy shop on Etsy. So that's extra income. I would never had agreed to this amount of child support if I had known about this extra income. Well, here I would ask the following. When you and your spouse signed this agreement on your own, did you get legal advice? Did you understand where and how the condo in Florida 
fit into the picture from a legal perspective? Did you two exchange disclosure before you signed? Did you give each other your income tax returns and pay slips? Did you ask questions about overtime? Did you swear financial statements? All that may seem like extra and unnecessary work at the time, but taking all those steps now will make an attack on the agreement down the road less likely, a successful attack. Again, some couples sign homemade separation agreements and never have a problem. But they're taking a risk that when something goes offside, there is some complication. Someone stops doing what they are supposed to be doing based on the agreement or if there is a change, for example. That is when they might find out there is a problem. So why not do it the right way to begin with? Go to the dentist to deal with that toothache rather than try and fill the cavity yourself. The other reason to have a separation agreement is to have a roadmap going forward. What do I mean here? Particularly where children are involved, it's helpful for parents to know what to do next if there is an issue or a problem. So, for example, most separation agreements will have a clause in them which tells the parties how to deal with situations when they do not agree on something having to do with the kids. These might be called dispute resolution clauses, and there are other names for them as well. If parents cannot agree on where a child goes to school and based on their agreement, this is a decision they need to make together, what happens? Well, the dispute resolution clause in their agreement should tell them that, give them a roadmap for next steps. It may say a variety of things, mediation, arbitration, going to court, using a parenting coordinator, and in the last episode, Uh, Elena Tamari and I spoke about parenting coordination, so I encourage you to listen to that if you are interested in this concept. Or to use another example, sometimes agreements involving young kids may have a clause which tells the parents what is to happen when the kids reach university or college age what is to happen to the existing child support arrangements. Now, one of the kids is going away to university and will be living on the other side of the country. How might this be addressed? Their agreement could have a clause which says they will meet before the beginning of that school year and discuss child support and other costs going forward or that they will mediate the new expenses related to post-secondary education with a family mediator. So these are the ways in which a smart, forward-looking separation agreement can provide a roadmap for parents. 
in case there are disagreements or problems. Let's get back to that elephant in the room, lawyers, and the cost of having them involved in negotiating and drafting separation agreements. I'm not going to give you legal advice. I would not do that, including because we do not know one another and you're not my client. But I will tell you from my professional experience that lawyers do have an important place in this process. A reasonable investment of time and money in their expertise when it comes to separation agreements is very likely worth it. You know that adage about doing things right in the right in the first place to avoid problems later as much as possible. We are now on takeaway number five, the last takeaway for today. And I am cycling back to the comment I made at the beginning of the episode about separation agreements usually coming at the end of a family law case. Let me say a few words about that usually. There are situations in which separated spouses may decide to deal with issues in chunks, either because they have to or because that is how their case is unfolding. Yes, I have some examples for you. Let's imagine that early in the case, while all other issues are being sorted out, disclosure, negotiations, valuations of a pension or a business, A decides to buy out B's interest in the matrimonial home. It's possible to do that before the rest of the case is dealt with, either by negotiations or even by court. Here, A and B might consider entering into a partial separation agreement, dealing only with the issue of the house buyout. So this would happen, just to clarify, before the end of the case. Here's another example. In a particular case, it is everyone's impression shared by the parties and their lawyers that the kids' issues are the most contentious and touchy. And once they are negotiated and agreed on, the rest of the case will fall in place, meaning the rest of the issues will be tackled faster and more efficiently with less disagreement. This may be a good reason to enter into a separation agreement slash parenting plan first. So this would be a partial agreement dealing only with the kids' issues. The financial arrangements, for example, would be negotiated and sorted out later, hopefully with a final separation agreement signed at the end. My third example is of an interim separation agreement. Interim meaning in the meantime or short term. Often, such agreements have to do with spousal support because in Ontario, periodic spousal support, meaning support paid every month, for example, is generally 
tax deductible to the payor and taxable in the hands of the recipient. To confirm this treatment of the payments and to allow for the tax deduction, sometimes a separation agreement is required and an interim agreement is something commonly used here. We have come to the end of this episode. I hope you have heard something which will help you navigate your way to a sane split, perhaps with the aid of a separation agreement. Negotiations which lead to the drafting and signing of such an agreement are the best way to deal with a separation, whether with lawyers or in the context of family mediation. A separation agreement at the end of a case is a great outcome, and for many couples, this is a realistic prospect with hard work, goodwill on both sides, and commitment to informed, fair negotiating and transparency. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com. Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app will make future episodes available to you automatically. Signing off for now.